Welcome to Church Out of the Drugs. My name is Jed. Uh, what's going on, everybody? Sorry, this is late. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. Here's also the the deal. I can talk words. Um, here is the deal. I had a guest scheduled and they backed out on me last minute, so I'm left uh, episode list for this week. So um, I dug up. Um, my story when I was on the System Is Down podcast with Dan Smokes. Um, so it's my story. I kind of told it a little differently. Uh, I actually really like how it turned out. Um, this was released on Patreon a while ago. So to my patrons, I'm sorry. Listen, I'm only one man. Okay, I'm human. Uh, but for the rest of you, hopefully it'll be something new and you'll enjoy it. If not, you know, I'm sorry. We'll get back to... Uh, regularly scheduled new episodes next week um so enjoy the interview Is the host of the podcast Church and Other Drugs, P Master Jetty, aka Jed Payne. Jed, how's it going, man? It's going well, man. How are you doing? I am doing splendidly, aside from the the personal things that we talked about before getting on here. That you know, eh, I'll air that all out later on in the future. But I feel like you and I have a lot in common, and uh, I've been on your show and we've uh, chatted back and forth about a few things, but. Um, I want to get some of your background. I want to talk to you about addiction and stuff like that because you, you seem to have a good grasp on some things um, based on you know the title, church, and other drugs. But uh, so let's start off. Just uh, tell everybody a little bit about your podcast and what you do over there. Yes. Yeah, so it's it's funny. I've been asked this recently too, and I, was, I realize I've never really come up with a concise like mission statement. <laughs> so our pad podcast was kind of born out of. Um, my our original co-host, who's kind of taken a back seat, um, me and him were uh, friends in middle school when we used to get high together, and mm-hmm. we kind of drifted apart. Um, he ended up getting sober, and I went farther down the spiral. So for about five years, he was always trying to get me to get sober, and I I like flew to California to live with him to try to clean up and. Uh, finally it clicked for me and so we're both Christians and we were both members of AA and so you can't really talk about anything any specific religion in AA and then we also realized that church would be a lot better off if it modeled itself after AA and a lot of like the rawness and the like confession and sin focus and so we were like well let's you know 
let's start a podcast and, and talk about that little niche, I guess, that we thought at the time. Um, mm-hmm. And plus, I've been to tons and tons of rehab centers all across the country. So I've met tons of people with just the most ridiculous and awesome stories. And I was like, those mm-hmm. stories need to get told. Um, so that's pretty much how that came up about we kind of split our episodes between um people telling their stories uh not everyone's even sober some of them are still out there getting high um sure people that deal with uh different types of addictions um then we'll talk about conspiracies and theology and you know we had a dude that is convinced uh the bible is littered with dmt references we you know uh i like it like yeah, <laughs> just and, and then it's also been kind of like my uh, my real time therapy, um, sure, which is the the best part. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, in addition to, to being an alcoholic, drug addict, I have depression and anxiety and PTSD and all sorts of stuff. So it's it's just been cool, man. It's it's you know it's it's lighthearted, it's funny, um, but we also you know it turned into uh, we actually apparently are helping some people out there, which which is cool. Yeah, added bonus. Over the course of this time, like, have you felt it easier to cope with your uh, your past issues? Like, seeing, have you been surprised to see how many people have come forward and been willing to be transparent about this type of thing? Yes, the and also the cool thing is almost every guest. If I'll have a guest on unrelated to addiction, somewhere along the conversation, I will find out that they somehow tie into addiction or they relate to it or they have a family member or something like that. So yeah, it's, it's, it's been really cool finding all that out. The the response has been good. Yeah. Uh, so what kind of drugs are we talking in your past? Was Uh, it just weed? Was it just, uh, alcohol? I I smoked a joint once and, uh, that was, (laughs) that that was it, man. (laughs) No, um, you felt guilty enough to start a podcast. Absolutely. Smoked that devil lettuce. (laughs) Became an expert on addiction. Uh, that's right. (laughs) Um, no. So my, I guess my absolute go-to was opiates. I was an IV heroin addict, but um, I also was into shooting up crystal meth, and I was a IV cocaine addict for a number of years. Um, really, anything and everything. I kind of took my turns being addicted to everything. Uh, sure. Um, Benzo, Xanax. Um, I had a long history with research chemicals and hallucinogens, LSD, mushrooms. Mm. Um, I, I was really a chemical hobbyist. So Mm -hmm. I I like really, like any good addict, I get obsessed about things. And so when I used my powers towards being obsessed with drugs, (laughs) it was, you know, it was off to the races. Sure. What kind of got you started down this path of, uh, you know, experimenting with with all these things? Yeah. So it was, so as a kid, they, they say that, you know, you are an alcoholic and addict before you ever touch a drug. And, and in my own history, I would say that is true. Um, it lately, so the definition has kind of changed over time late. The most recent is substance use disorder. It's a disease of the brain, um, similar to like an obsessive type thing where, you know, um, getting fixated over stuff and, so as a kid, um, I would switch between, I had a very active imagination. I was very sensitive, um, very empathetic. And 
my first addiction was like toys and comic books and action figures and stuff. And I would live in this fantasy world and I always had to have more. There was never enough. Um, Mm -hmm. and I tried beer first. I tried weed first. Didn't really do much for me. Um, my first experience where I was like, holy shit, I want to devote my life to this was when (laughs) I, uh, it was the summer of my 10th grade year and me and some friends, uh, my buddy John that I started the podcast with, we, uh, tripped on Coraceden Coffin Cold for the first time, which, (laughs) which is, uh, dextromethorphan, which is a a sister drug of, of ketamine and PCP, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and that experience blew my mind. I didn't know that those experiences were possible. Um, and it was, you know, you can say the demon entered at that night because I, I was like, <laughs> oh my God, uh, I want to do this. And at first, I very much fell for the lie of the romanticized drug addicted artist thing like uh, we sure. started watching fear and loathing in las vegas we watched requiem for a dream um i had a notebook that i wrote all the drugs i had tried um very very immature way to look at it like i, I was just young and experimenting um and I, I did have like actual depression but then you know going up and down on drugs so much just made it much worse. And I sure. had, I should have known it was bad. I had my first overdose when I was 15 on Benadryl, actually. That was my Yikes. first hospitalization and my first time uh, getting put in an outpatient treatment center. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, at the time, it, it was just kind of a joke. I thought I was in control of it. Um, and that kind of changed um, when I got introduced to cocaine and then heroin. So cocaine was what led me to first steal and compromise my morals and i remember the the day i tried cocaine my friend who gave it to me was like no jed this isn't like weed this isn't like other (laughs) drugs and i was like yeah sure whatever man you know i've Uh, heard but yeah i can handle anything right exactly (laughs) you just don't you know dare does not prepare you for what happens (laughs) yes so that was the first time I stole and compromised my morals, and it was enough for my parents to realize that I had a serious problem and to send me to an inpatient treatment center. So there was a waiting list for that one. It was about four months. So in that four months, I was like, I need to get it all out of my system. I need to try every drug because it's over with in my mind. Hmm. And heroin was on that list, but I wasn't going to shoot it up. That was my my line in the sand. And <laughs> I found some people that had heroin and when they got it for me, they were like, why don't you just shoot it up? And I was like, okay. And so I just let, <laughs> I let them, it was, they really punch across that line. All right, fine. Yeah. They, they really twisted <laughs> a real hard line. On one. Um, so they, they did. And, um, by the time I got to that treatment center, I was full blown heroin addict and, uh, I definitely needed to go. Uh, so that's, that was really when, that was only the beginning of mm-hmm. of the the serious serious decades of sure yeah so before we get into the deep dive um when you were like experimenting with some of the the lighter stuff uh did you feel like there were benefits to that uh outside of just you know I'm having a good time like people who don't typically do drugs don't see uh how you could come to a conclusion that this has a benefit that you know something like alcohol or cigarettes doesn't have 
Yeah, so there was a couple pieces to that. So the so in in my town, drinking was the socially accepted thing. I was a horrible Oops. drinker. Uh, I couldn't handle my liquor, and I couple that with a need to be accepted, and I don't like being made fun of. I kind of it's kind of the idea of like. You know, I'll just go to the extreme. So, be like, oh, you're drinking beer? Well, I'm snorting Coke just to, like, look <laughs> down. Like, this this was literally my mindset. Um, And with the with the hallucinogens and, like, mushroom and, and ecstasy back then when it was really good, um, the benefits were just the, the feelings. I mean, it was just, like... Uh, you know the the term is a, a psychonaut. You know, I was I was just exploring my mind sure. and um. Had you been diagnosed with anything uh, before that? Any mental issues? Yeah, um, generalized at that time it was like generalized anxiety. I had um, I was diagnosed with Tourette's at that time because I had. So in sixth grade, it was my first big trauma, which which was just that we moved and um, you know prepubescent didn't fit in and my anxiety got so bad that um i started i had facial tics where i would like i would breathe out of my nose constantly and i would blink in a very uh like twitchy way and i got made fun of it and it just fueled the anxiety and so um i had tourette's back then and depression and anxiety so yes it was also self-medicating for sure at the Mm -hmm. beginning yeah uh, what are your thoughts on like self medication? Do you do you think that uh, you think that it sh- things should be experimented with, or should we just leave that entirely up to professionals? Well, I mean, they call it a practice for a reason. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it literally is uh, sure. the the it's and I work in the field, you know, but but I will be the first to admit. I mean. Sh- a lot of it is throwing shit to the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, sure. It's it's not a precise um, thing. I think I did a lot of damage uh, that could have been avoided in my self medicating. I don't. So I to sum it up, I will say as an adult, if you're making informed, educated decisions, that's one thing. As a teenager, I think it is really a big mistake. Sure, uh, and you will do a lot more harm than you're going to do good. I kind of think that with medication, though, too, it kind of goes hand in hand. I think I got medicated maybe a little too early, mm-hmm. um, but who knows? I mean, I, I was on medicine when I was 11, I think, on like a pretty heavy duty antipsychotic um, at 11 years old, and that may have been a little too soon. Sure, yeah, gotcha. Uh, so let's continue on down your dark path a little bit. Uh, as you progressed deeper into, you know, the heavier stuff, um, what were kind of your experiences like in your relationships with your family and friends and stuff like that? Yeah, so I grew up as a background um, as I grew up Christian, right? Very much so. Um, I I had a lot of belief. I had a lot of faith. I also had a lot of fear. Um, mm-hmm. So, Were you one of them Pentecostals? No, I was a Presbyterian, <laughs> but in the Deep South, so gotcha. kind of yep. close. Um, 
<laughs> does a lot of mental damage. <laughs> it does, and I, I didn't. Well, and and it's you know, I think a lot of it was my personality because I, I don't think it was what I was yeah. taught. I think it was what I heard, and and those things were the specifics were: sex is bad, sex is a sin. Your right. desires are bad. Your desires are a sin. God hates sin. You're a sinner. You will yep. be punished. Be afraid. Yeah. So that's yeah, what I, I carried. Think I can. I think we both kind of had similar experiences on that note. Like you just obsess over certain things. So it was, I, I don't blame my parents for anything that they taught me. Of course um, not. I mean, it's just how my brain received things and processed through it. But yep, absolutely. And so what I found was drugs <laughs> cover up those feelings of guilt very much because I, I I had these desires. You know, I was a a blossoming teenage boy with urges all his own and but I had this guilt and I wanted to do these things and drugs allowed me the freedom to do these things like have the confidence to hook up with girls um yep and so after my first treatment um and when I you know it it is funny a, a, a bible verse that I think applies is just that one verse where it talks about if you uh, bind up the strong man, and then he comes back, he's going to bring seven of his friends stronger than the first. And that's a very true line in addiction in that, like, every t- every time I would sober up and go back out, it was just a thousand times worse. And mm-hmm. so I really, you know, I just turned um, 18. I was dating an older girl. I was in a band, a local uh, metalcore band at the time, top of the world. Um, Weren't we all? and um i was just going nuts just shooting up heroin shooting up cocaine i I Mm. moved out of my parents house at at their uh uh is that the word for that sure that works yeah that works um we like to pretend like we know big words around here yeah i know words (laughs) indubitably (laughs) um and I, I I just wanted I'd been I, I felt like I had lived a life that was so I couldn't do a lot of things and so this was the first time I was like fuck that I'm gonna go do all the things and I'm gonna go <laughs> yeah. live this imaginary life she uh, the girlfriend had her dad's credit card so we were just like living in this awesome apartment in Charleston South Carolina just shooting up cocaine and heroin and partying um, yeah. And it quickly got awful. It got really awful. <laughs> um, uh, and so I, I had to, my parents were trying to plan a surprise intervention for me that kept being like, hey, we're going to go to Disney World. And I was like, no, we're not. I know your tricks. It's um, the, the worst setup ever. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, but finally, uh, I had had enough and I called my mom and I was like, all right, I'm ready to go do something. And there was a long-term treatment center in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And so this is when I moved to Louisiana in 2005. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, right. So I'm not good at math about how many years was it that you were dealing with this before you fessed up to it? Uh, the, that summer, that was just like four months when I was just like, it was just like a bender from hell. Um, that time. So my, my using career stretched from 12 to 27, 12 to 27. Okay. Um, yeah. And it was two weeks before hurricane Katrina's when I moved to Louisiana. Um, (laughs) so that was an interesting, uh, property value, you know, you got to take advantage of the market. (laughs) I, I called my parents. I was like, you sent me here to die. Like, how could you do that? Yeah. <clears throat> um. And so I, I had found out also that I had gotten hepatitis C from the first time I shot up, which was very 
after school specially. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so also, so there was like a kind of, so back then the, uh, treatment for hepatitis C was essentially a, a chemotherapy. It was something called a ribavirin and Pegasus interferon. And it was an injection you gave yourself and, uh, every once a week. And for three days after that, you felt like you had the flu and a side effect of it was one in 10 patients committed suicide. So they automatic, like that was an accepted side effect of this medicine. <laughs> <laughs> you might get better or you might, die. or you might kill yourself. Who yeah. knows? <laughs> so they put you on an antidepressant automatically. And it's, it's a, uh, a, a like year to two year long process. So, mm. um, so that was going on. So my head was not in the best place. Um, and I'd been in treatment for about 11 months. Um, a great treatment. Uh, I'm still friends with people from there to this day. Um, dirty Mike who I've had on my podcast was one of the people I was in there with, but, um, yeah, so, uh, I got a home pass. Um, I had a girlfriend in, in Baton Rouge and I got a home pass, um, to South Carolina and I ended up hooking up with my ex uh, girlfriend that I'd been using with in Charleston and came back to Louisiana, didn't think anything of it. I got a call like two months later saying she was pregnant. Um, and through Jeez, you're all the after school specials, aren't you? All of them. And, <laughs> and so I, at, you know, in my headspace being 18, I, I could not handle it. And I pushed for her, her to have an abortion and, and she mm-hmm. did, which was probably like the most like, devastating moment I've had in myself. Um, that was like the, the, you know, Christian value. I thought I was a murderer. Um, really, really, really fucked me up. And so obviously I, I relapsed after that. Um, and that's when my journey of, uh, treatment center hopping really kind of started. So what would happen is I, you know, I'd go to treatment, and if you, you relapse, my parents would call the treatment. Hey, what do we do? Send them back to rehab. And some people, so I, I started my journey. I'm a little different than others because I got sent off when I was 17. So I never had a job. I was never financially independent, um, any of that. So I was, you know, kind of a ward of the state. You know, I, if I wanted help from my parents, I had to do what they said. Mm-hmm. Um, and also some people can get away with, they can they can control their use a little bit. Every time I would go out and use drugs, it would end in these like horrendous catastrophes. Um, um, the the worst of which. So, you know, I I had done the in and out of treatment thing a couple times. Um, and there was uh, I was seeing a psychiatrist. She put me on this medicine called Gabatril, ironically because she thought it was the only thing that couldn't be abused. I found out that that if you drink proved on you're it, wrong. yeah, proved you wrong. Gotcha. Uh, I found out that if you drink on it, you get ridiculously screwed up. Um, and so I, I'll never forget this day. I, I was living with two girls that I'd met um, at a uh, campus ministry. Uh, we were living on LSU, and so there were two two nice church girls. Bless their hearts that I put them through this. Um. So the night before, I drank on that medicine and gotten really high. So I wasn't going to drink the next day. So logic would tell you just double the dose and it should work on its own, right? Sure, makes sense. Sure. 
Um, so I did that. Uh, they, they asked me, Hey, we're going to church. Do you want to come? I said, no, thank you. I have plans tonight. So I stayed home. <laughs> I stayed yep. at their house. I took, took the pills. Um, I noticed the world was starting to shake, which I was unfamiliar with. Uh, and the <laughs> la- the last thing I remember was, uh, man vs. wild was on TV. And I remember a sideways view of that because I laid down on the couch and, and that's the last thing I remember. Um, Mm. what happened was, uh, it was on a white leather couch also. So the girls came home, the TV was up all the way. There was blood all over the apartment. Uh, and I was in a corner locked into a catatonic seizure state. My, uh, my arms were in a posturing position. My eyes were rolled in the back of my head and I was bleeding. So what had happened is I'd begun to have a seizure and I hit my head on the table and then seizured blood all over the apartment, like just throwing blood all over the apartment. The things you didn't see in the after-school specials. The things you don't <laughs> see in uh, the after-school special. Uh-huh. Um, and so I was in a coma for four days on that one. And mm. they you know, they told my mom, uh, if he wakes up, he'll be severely brain damaged. We don't expect him to. Um and I, so that was the last thing I remember was, was Bear Grylls and Man vs. Wild. And then the next mm. thing I remember, um, I woke up to, so in the intensive care unit, uh, this is, uh, in Catholic, in Baton Rouge is very Catholic. They have a, a priest walking around praying over all the coma patients. Mm-hmm. Um, I woke up as this priest was praying over me, which I'm sure scared him as much as it scared me. <laughs> Um, because so like, this has never worked before. <laughs> yeah, so, well, I thought I was dead. So, cause I mean, yeah. I, I woke up in blurred vision. I don't know what had happened. And all I see is a man with a, a collar, a priest collar. And I remember right. seeing two, uh, women. I remember them being female figures on either side of him. So I haven't, the only thing confirmed is that the pastor was there. I've never gotten any confirmation from anyone. If there were two other figures there. You know, mm-hmm. who knows? And I, I, I just remember bursting into tears, and I thought I was dead. Um, and he was like, "No, no, no, you're alive." So I, I, that's how I woke up. Wow. Um, the thing, and so most people would say, "Well, that surely that was it, right?" Like, no. the The problem <laughs> with with my um overdoses is I don't remember them. It's a very different experience. Right. Um. I don't remember the pain. I don't remember seeing my mom cry. I don't remember any of that. You know, for for me, it was just I had all these people worried about me, like coming up to me, like, are you okay? It was a lot of attention. Um, that's kind of it. I didn't see how fucked up of a thing it is to do to your right. loved ones and family members, right? Um, so I went, I went back to treatment, um, got out of treatment, relapse, did this dance. And and so finally, you know, when I was around 23, um, I was like, look, I am tired of this my whole life. Y'all have told me that I'm a drug addict. I don't even think it's a disease. I think y'all are full of shit. I think it's only a problem because y'all make it a problem. If mm-hmm. you would just let me drink, things would be okay. Um, I I had a prescription to Suboxone and Xanax and Adderall, which I was selling on the side. So I was financially independent for the first time. And so I I just (laughs) called my mom and I was like, look, I'm going to drink and you just need to be okay with that. I don't need your money anymore. So there that is. Um, So that started 
<clears throat> I, I tested out not believing in God also. I was like, I don't, you know, I keep praying to be delivered from this thing. It's not happening. Um, right. All these other people have these normal lives. They drink. Nothing bad happens to them. Why me? I just don't think you're real. And this led, so my two-year um, testing out of the freedoms uh, led to me discovering crystal meth. Um, so Suboxone is a, a maintenance medication you take uh, that makes it so you can't get high on other opiates. It's kind of like similar to methadone. Okay. <clears throat> so I wasn't, you know, shooting heroin, but then I started uh, crystal meth, and and like any good meth head, I also started selling guns, stolen guns, and um, what happened was I oh I also developed a crippling gambling addiction at this time because the <laughs> the crystal meth scene in Louisiana, all the tweakers congregated at the casinos because they're open mm-hmm. twenty four hours. You get free alcohol and you can geek out on the slot machines, and it's, it's very conducive to a horrible demonic lifestyle. Sure. Um, so what happened was, um, I was trying to, and they also cast checks. So I was trying to cash a bad check at the casino. It wasn't working. I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, I looked down and there was a valet ticket on the ground and I was like, okay, you know, sweet. So mm-hmm. I, I, uh, grabbed the valet ticket. I went upstairs. Um, I handed the valet person the ticket and they handed me some car keys and I was like, all right, <laughs> sweet. So uh, I get into a Dodge 2500 Dually, bright red, with a giant insane clown posse vinyl sticker on the back. <laughs> and uh, I drive away. And as Just asking to dro- get shot, man. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> it, as soon as I drove away, I was like, huh. I was like, what are you going to do with the car, Jed? Like, you didn't think this one through. So I drove it across the street, left the keys in it, and walked home. All right? And I yep. thought that was that. So... Uh, fast forward two months and I'm, I, you know, I'm selling guns, I'm selling meth this particular Sunday morning. Um, I mean, I had security cameras set up, I, you know, I was prepared, but I had cleaned all of my guns. My safe was open with all my drugs and there was just, there was a knock at the door and I was like, okay, customer number one. Um, and I opened the door and there's a, a, a very large police officer standing there and, and, and I Whoops. go, Oh, uh, and I tried to shut the door. He reaches in, he handcuffs me. And, um, I, at that period of time, I, um, was carrying pistols on me at all times for some reason, you know? So he turned <laughs> around did. to handcuff me and said, holy shit. And, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> this, this is, uh, and I went to jail and he goes, do you remember stealing a car from a casino? And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> like, that's what this is about. Um, Oh, that's all it is. Sure, let's go. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then he saw the. Just guns. Don't look in the closet. <laughs> yeah, he did. He looked. Um, yeah. So yeah, so I found myself uh, for the first time um, in. in I had made it twenty three years without going to prison, and, and hmm. that was over with. And I, my mom would later tell me that she, uh, like a week beforehand, she had been woken up in the middle of the night, and she felt like God was telling her, "You need to let him go." And mm-hmm. so she prayed that, like, okay, I'm I'm giving him to you. And shortly after that, I got arrested. This this was also one of the darkest times in my life. I thoroughly believe if, if I didn't get arrested, I would have died. I was doing meth and lots of research hallucinogens. I regularly put pistols in my mouth. I was hearing voices. I was 
writing scrawled messages all across my apartment. We shot guns in my apartment. Like it was a very, I lived above a witch. Like it was, Mm. it it was a really seriously uh, dark, dark time in my life. Um, Right. That was not going to end well. Movie quality stuff. Yeah. (laughs) That is horrible in practice. Like in real life, it's, it's, terrifying don't um, try this at home yes yeah <clears throat> so i was in a east baton rouge parish prison um that was awful uh <laughs> that's <laughs> kind of all there is to say about that that was the worst yeah. experience of my entire life um and i refound god in there uh which oftentimes people do um i had a few very very intense spiritual experiences enough that I felt like reborn. Um, I had a a renewed motivation to stay sober. This was the first time in my life that I felt like God actually did supernaturally remove the desire to use drugs from me. I did not want to use drugs ever again. Um, I got out of prison and went to a sober living house. Um, and Instead of maintaining that, I was very arrogant about it. Um, I was like, I'm good. I don't need to go to meetings. I don't need to do this or that. Um, And I started treating, I was sleeping around, uh, and I developed a really serious pornography addiction for the first time in my life. Um, Hey, if you made it that long, then, you know, you at least... (laughs) You missed that boat that everybody else was on. You just right. skipped straight to meth instead. <laughs> right, right. So, um, yeah, I found that I was, you know, I was sober, sure, but but I was doing all these other morally compromising things that I knew were wrong, um, mm. and so the guilt was starting to crop back up in my life, and, you know, um, it was only a matter of time. Um, I remember... Uh, I tried to help get my friend sober. He came in and he introduced me to Kratom, which is a a legal opioid that's gaining popularity lately. Um, I didn't know what it was at the time. I thought it was uh, nothing to be worried about, and I ended up getting, we both got physically addicted to Kratom. We did that for a few months. They found out. They kicked us out, and I went and... um, went to We went to a bar the next day, and I ordered a beer, and I... I didn't even drink the beer. I said, who am I kidding? And I just called my heroin dealer and I was like, yeah, I'm not going to play this game. We're just going to go straight to mm. straight to a 100. Um, and you know, that started the, there we go again. That started the last, um, three years in, in that three years. Um, I tried to commit v- v- vehicular suicide. I drank a bunch of GHB and I just went driving and I hit two parked cars at a red light going 50 miles an hour with no brakes, just smashed into him. I walked away with it with nothing. Um, I got rearrested, um, went to a number of more treatment centers. Um, you know, it just got slowly and slowly. Um, you know, I'm, I'm getting older. Nobody wants to mess with me anymore. My friends are dropping off. People are dying. It's moved past, any kind of fun into just a, a, a whole just addiction. I'm doing things I never thought I would do. I was overdosing constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I met my current wife during this time. We um, ended up relapsing together. 
Um, we went to rehab together about three times. Um, and the last time we were, what finally happened was that nothing happened. Um, it was just, I was, we were both homeless. We would wake up, go, uh, uh, fly up cardboard sign by the interstate you know begging Mm -hmm. for money we would get enough money to put gas in the car we were living in we would drive to walmart we would steal blu-rays we would drive to fye we would sell them we would go Mm -hmm. buy dope and then we would go back to the interstate and just do that um and it was awful the american (laughs) dream yeah living the dream um i had completely lost my connection to god which was the scariest thing Mm -hmm. um I remember one day I, I it, it clicked that I had not prayed in like months and I tried to and I was like unable to and it was a very surreal, terrifying feeling. Mm. Um, so my wife went to treatment before I did and uh, on August 24th, 2014, I had my last overdose um, in the, this is right when like the fentanyl thing was, was kicking off. Um and uh, I was driving my car, I guess, because they found me in the, in the middle of the road in my car out. Um, and I had my heroin on the gear shift, um, and a police officer got in my car and moved it off the road. So he literally had to, you know, put it in gear. <laughs> yeah. But either he didn't see the heroin or he just had mercy on me, and I, I didn't get in any charges. So that was my my sign i was like okay it's it's time to do something and so i I went back to treatment again um Mm -hmm. this time with the help of nobody nobody cared my parents hadn't talked to me in a long time yeah it was like you know if you want to get sober do it on your own um and that's what i did Mm -hmm. and uh yeah so that was september 23rd 2014 um yeah it was the last time i went to treatment i've been sober since then congratulations yeah. That's awesome. So, what made this time stick? Uh, I, I mean, up to this point, what what's been different? Um, man. So this, it's a you know, large large part I just attribute to God and maintaining me when I couldn't do it myself, and then beyond that, it's just doing simple things. So I. I fully dove into AA. I joined a men's book study. Uh, I joined a church. I played in the church band. Um, I connected myself. I had a real... I was still on probation, so that helped. Um, uh, You know, I had a... What happened with my charges was that I had a 10-year deferred sentence, so if I screwed up again, I was going to go do 10 years. Mm. Um, So that was a good motivator. Sure. I just did the simple things. I was really done at that point too. Like I really, really was. Um, Mm -hmm. So I was very desperate and I lived in a sober living house for nine months. I worked a minimum wage job for six and I just made being sober my whole job, man. Um, Me and my, my wife, girlfriend at the time, we went into uh, couples therapy. Um, You know, we didn't live together until we got married. I just tried to do everything it's like I, I'd been trained. I knew what to do. I'd just never done it. Yeah. Um, and so I just did it finally. Right. <laughs> yeah. Simple as that. Simple as that. Yeah. It really was. <laughs> you know, it's it's been easy. It's been, you know, last year was probably my hardest year. Um, I started my job as a uh, 
um, substance abuse counselor at an adolescent treatment facility, um, which is really rewarding and really difficult. Um, Mm -hmm. I've lost a lot of friends this last year, um, you know, and it's my second year married. So, you know, life is getting real. Um, it's been, it's been challenging, but, um, yeah, I think 2019 is going to be a good one. Yeah, for sure. So you've been doing this podcast for about what, two, three years, something like that. Yep. This is year number three. Okay. Um, so you basically started doing the podcast, what, two, three years after, uh, finally getting sober. Um, did you have any concern about, you know, maybe it's too soon to start being the, uh, the guy who speaks with authority about this type of thing when, Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, it it was partially a built in thing. It was one more thing in between me and using as well. It was like, I'm literally putting myself out there to the world to hold me accountable. Sure. You you know what I mean? It's like, I, I already knew up front that I wouldn't be able to lie if I relapsed, like (laughs) I just couldn't do it. And, um, you know, we became friends with another recovery podcast, um, Dopey, and, you know, I was good friends with both of their hosts, and um, one of the hosts recently relapsed and overdosed and died, and so that mm-hmm. was that was a reality check. Um, but no, I mean, if you've got a month sober, you know how to stay sober a month, so you have valuable experience. So, sure. so that's kind of the thing. It's, it's, it, you owe it to other people that are struggling to share your experience. It's, it's, it's a duty. Right on. Gotcha. Um, now do you, uh, I I don't know exactly where you stand politically, but we do talk a lot about libertarian concepts on this show. So I'm curious as to your thoughts on, uh, on legalization or like decriminalization of some of these substances. Do you think that it would be, uh, I've always said, but I didn't go through the same shit that you went through, but I've always said that, uh, you know, I, I think that this stuff should be legalized in our – if our tax dollars are going to something, it shouldn't be locking people in cages. It, it should be helping people you know, uh, be educated on the effects of these things and helping them uh, recover rather than throwing them away. Do, do you agree with that or do you have a different stance as somebody who's gone through it? Yes. No, I, th- I think uh, – I believe in legalization just strictly because the war on drugs is an objective failure. Um, yeah. The prison system – is unbelievably corrupt and racially biased and you know they are not interested in rehabilitating drug offenders um i don't know how something like that would work in a as big a country as the u.s i I look at the portugal model where they've legalized everything Mm -hmm. and it's the studies came the 10-year study came back it's doing well over there i'm for safe injection sites um the the idea of just i the arguments against legalization just aren't good for me if 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 alcohol is going to be legal then then mm-hmm. weed should as well and other things should as well because alcohol is the single most deadly drug in existence it's the only sure. one that can cause cancer to every part of the body that it touches like it's it's so incredibly hypocritical to me. So that, that's really my stance is that like if these things are going to be legal, if if Adderall and Xanax and opiates are going to be, you know, technically technically legal their prescription, then like mm-hmm. who are you to put people in prison for a plant? Sure. Like 
Right. But as uh, as I'm listening to your story, you said that, you know, uh, the main one of the main things that shook you out of your funk and got you able to, you know, uh, stick to sobriety was the fear of being, you know, facing a 10 year sentence. Um, So that's true. I don't, I don't know. I mean, if it was if heroin was legal tomorrow and you could buy it at the at the local gas station, would you be more likely to relapse or not? Well, I'm playing I mean, devil's advocate here because yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> well, so you know, so the the prison sentence was for crime that I committed. So if you commit a crime for for a drug, then yes, you deserve to go to prison. Sure. Um, and just answer the second thing, I can totally go down to the gas station and buy some heroin. <laughs> like right now, I know exactly where to go get it. You know, like sure. uh, that's that's the other fa- the, the other fallacy is that just because it's illegal, it means like I think my prediction would be there would be a honeymoon period where there might be some new users. Sure. Um, and then it would level off back to, you know, I mean, it's like, do you, would you do heroin if it was legal? Uh, good question. I, yeah. I would like to say that <laughs> I, I, I would like to say, yeah, I might try it, but I, I'd be okay. You know, that thought process that yeah, <laughs> our type true. have, but, um, I mean, hearing the stories there, I would probably steer clear of that in particular and stuff to that magnitude, well, but and, and I, I guess, know. I guess I'll say I'm in favor of decriminalization. Sure. That's, that's what all, I don't, yeah, I don't think we should go back to, I think it's, I think our society's too set up in a, in a way uh, against it that if we you know we can't just all of a sudden be like all right johnson and johnson heroin go buy it <laughs> I, I don't think that would work out very well sure. but decriminalization um if you you know you should have the right because mm-hmm. i don't because it really is just killing people um mm-hmm. so many people if they if they had access to uh safe um chemicals like I don't believe people deserve to die because they wanted to try drugs. Like that's right. what, um, and the people that are decrying drug addicts while they sip a Budweiser can go fuck themselves. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> for real. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah. For, you're a better American if you, uh, if you drink a 12 pack of Bud Light every night, but you know, if you try crack once, you're, you're an addict for life. Yeah. Right. I mean, look at, look at <laughs> caffeine, look at nicotine, look right? at, Coco, look at, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, we are sugar. a nation, sugar, good mm-hmm. Lord, don't get, yeah, I, <laughs> I do love sugar, but we're a nation, you know, we're a nation, we're a, we are a species that loves chemicals, man, it's it's just the whole, you know, f- the war on drugs just really, and if you're going to make something illegal, give me a good reason, give sure. me a good reason, there we go, like, uh, you know. Yeah, no victim, no crime, but uh, so would you... Well, do you ever have like uh, uh, any trouble not relapsing at this point? Do you ever feel the the urge to jump back in? Oh yeah, I I, I don't think that'll ever go away. Sure. Um, it's it does not have um, the teeth that it used to. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, I mean, I love drugs. I loved getting high. <laughs> it was who I was for a a large portion of my life. Yeah. Um, my you know, I've retrained my brain. I mean, I've had, I've experienced dopamine releases that should not be felt by humans because we can't <laughs> handle them. Like my yeah. brain's going to remember that shit, especially shooting up. I mean, it's very, 
Um, I mean, putting creamer in coffee sometimes triggers me because it looks like blood registering in a, in a syringe. Um, mm. Belts trigger me. Uh, when I go to the gym and I see people's veins bulging out, that triggers me. Mm. Um, but it's, it's, but it's different. It, it, like I said, it sure. doesn't have the teeth it does. And, and I just have to, that's why I still go to meetings. That's why I'm a counselor partially. Cause it reminds me of where I don't want to be again. The, right. the people I see relapse forget. They think that they can drink a beer. They think that they can smoke a joint. Um, for me, I've just tried that. I've tried it. I've tried that experiment so many times and I just can't do it successfully. Yeah. Right on. Uh, so would you agree with the, the statement, once an addict, always an addict? Yes, for me. I'll, I'll speak sure. for me. Yes. You can't un, You can't uh, make a cucumber out of a pickle. <laughs> gotcha. Um, so, well, do, do you think that applies for anybody who's an addict, or do you think that term is if, pretty blanketed? So if you are a real deal alcoholic addict yes mm-hmm. that applies the okay. the issue that is cropped up lately is little johnny smokes a joint mom <laughs> freaks out sends him to treatment treatment tells that tells little johnny that you are an addict and an alcoholic that statement may not be true mm-hmm. um and then you know what little Johnny then has to do to stay sober is different than a true blue alcoholic. Little Johnny might can drink a little a beer every now and then and be okay. And right. I start to think that I am like him, I'm in trouble. Sure. Um, so, yes, with the qualifier that if you have whatever this is, if you don't want to call it a disease, whatever, it's definitely something, then yes, you've kind of, I've given up my right to chemical peace of mind. Yeah, gotcha. So, do you have any uh, any words out there for the the little Johnnies or the little Jetties who are going through this shit at, at this point? Uh, yeah. Um, if you need help, if you need someone to talk to, if you have any questions, email me churchandotherdrugs at gmail dot com. I will respond immediately. Um, be safe. Uh, it is not the it's not the same game it was anymore the the chances of you dying are exponentially higher um mm-hmm. we we are in the middle of um a crisis right now and it, it doesn't matter what you're using people are are using pill presses to turn fentanyl into Xanax into mm-hmm. uh it's in cocaine now um it's just not it's just simply not the same game anymore um i would caution your experimentation if you are young you know your brain's the prefrontal cortex isn't done developing until you're around 24, 23, 25. Um, really just, you know, watch yourself, look out for your friends. Um, don't use alone. Um, don't be ashamed to ask for help. Um, and just be careful. It's, it's a different, it's a different world than even when I was doing it 10 years Mm -hmm. ago. Do you think we need to change the the dare slogan from like dare to keep kids off drugs to like dare to not freaking kill yourself? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like teach them harm reduction. Teach them, you know, you Narcan is now available at over the counter at Walgreens. Narcan mm-hmm. is a uh, opioid overdose reversal drug. All right, you can get it in a nasal spray or um uh an injection um. 
educate yourself on that. If you have any friends that use opiates, if you know, just keep it on hand. It's a it, it literally it has saved my life and it saves other people's lives. Mm. Um, deaths are avoidable. Um, you know, just educate yourself. Don't don't be swayed by like fear mongering. Um, if if people can't be honest about what they're doing or what they want to do, then that's how people die. Right. Absolutely. So on that note, do you, um, probably even more importantly, do you have words of wisdom for uh, family members and parents and stuff that are watching their their loved ones go through this? God, that's the hardest question and the question I get all the time. Um, <laughs> uh, it's going to be the most difficult thing you go through. And I, I guess my biggest advice is to learn how to not enable your loved one, how to not protect them from consequences. You need to let them fall short of letting them die. You need to let them experience consequences. Um, and you need to not enable them. There, there's something called Al-Anon. If you are a family member or a, or a spouse or whatever of someone dealing with addiction those are the meetings that are for you guys um and they'll help teach you how to be okay no matter what your loved one does um and yeah i mean just you know hold on tight pray for them uh Mm -hmm. just learn how to help them in a healthy way Mm -hmm. never give them cash that's (laughs) right on (laughs) oh cool man um so if you don't have any uh, any final thoughts or anything, we can uh, uh, you can go ahead and plug your show, let everybody know where they can find out more information about you and your podcast and all that. Uh, sure, yeah. So we're um, Church and Other Drugs. You can find us on Facebook. Um, don't really use Twitter that much anymore. Uh, we're on iTunes, Spot, um, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you can find podcasts, uh, Church and Other Drugs. Um, you can email us at churchandotherdrugs at gmail.com. We have a patreon with tons and tons of bonus content uh patreon.com slash church and other drugs um you can yeah i'm always answering facebook messages and emails if you have any questions if you have any um if you need advice whatever if i can't help you i'll make sure i find somebody that can very cool well awesome man uh it's been an absolute blast having you on um and i hope to do it again in the very near future i feel like we've got like i said a lot in common and your story is a fascinating one and very important to put out there so i applaud you for the transparency and i think we need more jed pains in the world so keep it up man and uh thanks for being here thanks buddy